0: Well, good morning. Again, one ancient hope and welcome. My name is Matt. I'm the interim pastor here. If I haven't been able to meet you, I would love to do so. Please reach out. My question for this morning is, who makes their bed every morning? Um, Literally, if you're here in the space, you can raise your hand If you make your bed every morning, low numbers, if you're on YouTube, go ahead, put it in the comments, let us know, be proud. If you make your bed every morning, uh, personally, I did not make my bed every morning until I got married. Um, And I know this is pretty contentious. The people who do make their bed every morning, they'll probably make claims like this will make you more productive. You'll be more successful in your career. Every millionaire probably makes their bed every morning. I didn't really see the point. I mean, it just gets messed up again the next day. So why do it? In fact, to this day, if I'm going to a a hotel and the sheets are really tight on the bed and tucked in and, you know, it looks beautiful, but I I can't fall asleep until I pull them out and mess it up a little bit. It's not really my thing. A writer I like, her name is Tish Harrison Warren, and uh, she shares my sentiment about bed making. She says that she assumed that most people outside of a small group of elite Pinterest perfect superhumans and Instagram influencers didn't make their beds unless they were hosting a party or their mom was visiting. She said it seemed like something, uh, you know, that Sisyphus would have been punished with this sort of meaningless task that you repeat day after day, make the bed, mess it up, make the bed, mess it up on and on and on. Well, my wife disagrees with both Tish and I, and this was a a big point of contention in our first year of marriage. You see, Sarah worked very early during our first years of marriage. She would leave the house by 5 a.m., and I worked normal hours, as you would say, so I slept in until 8, I would wake up, I'd go to work. She'd come home around two or three, I'd still be at work, and she'd come home to a messy bed. And uh, it didn't go well. So eventually we created a rule. Whoever gets up later has to make the bed. So five days out of the week, I was stuck with this childish chore, and I made sure on the weekends I'd get up one minute. When I could tell she was about to get up, I'd get up real fast before her so that she would have to make the bed. And honestly, this continued until about a year ago, we were doing some some marital counseling, and the counselor recommended, you know, what's one simple gesture that you could put into your routine daily that might show your spouse that you love them? And I knew what I had to do. I had to make the bed regardless of if I got up first or second. It worked really well for a while, but my habits. If my, if Sarah, if you're listening at home, she'll be like, he doesn't still do that. It's true. I need to get better again. It's fine. Okay. We're in week two of a three-week series that I'm calling a misuse of the imagination, Christ's invitation from worry to wonder. And believe it or not, this series is not about domestic chores, although we will get back to those later. Last week, we looked at a story about hospitality, anxiety, and distraction. This famous story about Martha and Mary. Jesus, you see, he invites us away from a fragmented life to live centered on him. Freed from the worry that comes from earning, controlling, or manipulating love. And we're asked only to receive. I invited us last week to explore this practice of breath prayer as a way to quiet our worried thoughts and still our anxious bodies so that we might hear only that voice that names us as beloved. And this week, we turn to another anxiety-inducing story, this time found in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. But... Before we begin there, let's begin at the beginning. Chaos. In the beginning, there was only undifferentiated, swirling water of chaos. Out of this swirl, the waters divided into sweet, fresh water, named the god Apsu and bitter, salty water named the goddess Tiamat. Then, once differentiated, they decided to come back together, and they birthed the younger gods. These young gods, however, were extremely loud. They were troubling the sleep of the god Apsu at night, and they were distracting him from work during the day, so Apsu decides he's going to kill the younger gods. But Tiamat... His wife and mother, she doesn't really want this to happen. So she tells her eldest son, Enki. And Enki puts Apsu to sleep and kills him. Then from Apsu's remains, Enki builds his house. While Tiamat, the goddess who was once in favor of these younger gods, her children, now she's enraged because they've killed her mate. And so she decides to make war on these younger gods. Tiamat summons the forces of chaos and she creates these 11 horrible sea monsters to destroy her children. Well, Enki and all the other younger gods, they decide to fight against Tiamat and their attempts are pretty futile until finally from among them emerges the champion Marduk. Marduk kills Tiamat, and the way he does it is he shoots her with an arrow, and it splits her in two. And out of her eyes flow the waters of the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. And her body, split in half, creates the heavens and the earth. And after the gods have finished praising Marduk for his great victory and the art of his creation, Marduk decides to create human beings. He creates Lulu, the first man, to be helper to the gods in their eternal task of maintaining order and keeping chaos at bay. Now, this is the creation story of the Mesopotamians, of the Babylonians, that's recorded in the Enuma Elish. It's from about the 12th century .BC, um, which you know gives us a, a time range of about when Moses would have been around and about when he would have written the creation story that we have in Genesis. This story all begins with this watery, swirling chaos. And then, you know, five, hundred or so years later, you have the Greek poet Hesiod. And he writes a similar thing. He says in 750 BC In truth, chaos comes first. Then, out of chaos, are birthed the gods of night, earth, sky, sea, etc. And then, 700 years after Hesiod, you have Ovid, who is this famous Roman poet and writer. And Ovid writes during the reign of Augustus. So now we're getting much closer to Jesus' life. Ovid says in a poem explaining creation before the ocean and the earth appeared, before the skies had overspread them all, the face of nature in a vast expanse was nothing but chaos, uniformly waste. It was a rude and undeveloped mass that nothing made except a ponderous weight. And all discordant elements confused were there congested in a shapeless heap. Chaos. Chaos. It all begins with chaos. Of course, we need only open our own scriptures to the first page to read something similar in the Hebrew origin story going to read three different translations of those first two or three verses. Eugene Peterson translates the beginning of Genesis like this. First, this God created the heavens and the earth, all you see and all you don't see. Earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness an inky blackness. God's spirit Brooded like a bird above the watery abyss, God spoke light and it appeared. Another one of my favorite translations, the common English Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without shape or form. It was dark over the deep sea and God's wind swept over the waters. God said, let there be light. And so light appeared. Or again, in perhaps the more familiar English Standard Version, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Chaos. It all begins with chaos, formless and void, deep, dark, watery chaos. Now let's turn to Mark chapter four, verse 35, the beginning of our New Testament lesson. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Is this anything but a description of chaos? Mark tells us they begin their journey at night. So you have to imagine a few boats journeying somewhere between probably five and 13 miles across the Sea of Galilee. Now, a lot of these disciples we know were actually like pro fishermen. So they'd probably made this journey before. And because storms were likely on the sea of Galilee, they probably weathered a few storms, maybe even at night, which was supposed to be sort of the calmest time of the water. But this storm is different, right? So it is nighttime on the water Or as Genesis 1 put it, there's darkness over the face of the deep. And a great windstorm arose, says Mark. Or as Genesis 1 puts it, and the spirit or the wind of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There's something primordial about this storm. And all the while this is occurring, we learn in the next verse, but Jesus was asleep in the stern. He was asleep on the cushion. Mark, about to show Jesus' full divinity, is very careful to narrate the humanity of Jesus in full as well. Jesus was asleep on a cushion, on a pillow. Now, if the storm is really bad enough. But if it's really of cosmic proportions that cause veteran fishermen to fret, how is it that Jesus, a landlocked carpenter by trade, a landlubber, as they say, could sleep so soundly? Well, I think it's because Jesus' imagination has been so formed by the Psalms that he's able to fully embody this sweet confidence that they speak of. Let me just give a few verses of these Psalms that speak of Jesus. These these must have been ingrained in him. Psalm 3, verse 5 and 6, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around Or in the next psalm, Psalm 4, verse 8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Or in Psalm 16, verses 9 and 10. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy one see corruption. Psalm eighty-nine nine, you rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up you still them. Psalm one o seven, twenty-nine to thirty, He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. So imagine again the disciples in all their boating expertise. They're rocking their fishermen sweaters. They got their boat shoes on. They got those big rubbery hats on. They got the giant buckets. They're trying to get the water out of the boat, rushing back and forth. And then there's Jesus in his robe and sandals curled up on a pillow. Mark is writing with this heaping dose of irony. And that's so that us as the readers can be brought in to the story, can be drawn in to make it our own. In the second half of verse 38, it says, they woke him and said to him, teacher, rabbi, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, apart from a couple words in Mark chapter one, these are the first words addressed to Jesus by his disciples in Mark's gospel. And I don't actually think that Mark is trying to shame the disciples or make them look stupid or faithless or silly. I think he's trying to show their faith. A group of fishermen go to perhaps the only non-fisherman on the boat and ask him for help. Why? What good could he be in helping? Why on earth do they care that Jesus is sleeping? I think the same reason that Jesus is able to sleep is the same reason that the disciples go to wake him from sleep. I think it's because these disciples who had studied the Torah, who had studied the Jewish scriptures, also had their imaginations shaped by the Psalms and the prophets. So that same verse in Psalm 107 was probably in their mind, which is, he made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven." Or perhaps even more appropriate for these disciples who wake Jesus might have been Isaiah 51, verses 9 and 10. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Rahab, by the way, is this chaotic sea creature in Jewish folklore. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? The disciples wake Jesus up in faith, not faithlessness. True, it's faith fueled by fear, but nonetheless, it is faith. And the first words they say to him in this story, they sound a lot like Martha's words to Jesus which we talked about last week. She says, Lord, do you not care? Here they say, teacher, do you not care? And you might think these are the words of doubters, but these are the words of the faithful. As I said last week, you know, we, we cannot skip this step. The worry, the anxiety, the doubt, it must be brought to Jesus. There is no question too offensive, no load too heavy, no worry too big, no chaos uncontrollable for Christ. But it must be brought to Him. You see, Christians are meant to be a people of the truth, which means we have to be able to name reality truthfully. And that includes the realities we might feel of our worries. Or our doubts, or our insecurities, or anxiety. The first step of addressing these is to accurately name them before God. Verse 39 And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Our translation today says peace be still. Other translations try to be even more polite and have Jesus say quiet to the sea. Literally the, the word Jesus is used can be translated as be muzzled. And it's the same phrase that he uses to the demons earlier on in Mark as he's performing an exorcism. Be muzzled kids. Plug your ears. Jesus says to the chaos, shut up! Shut up! So does it seem like Jesus is unconcerned with your fate? Does it seem like the chaos around is winning? Is the noise getting too loud? Because to every voice, including your own that condemns and confuses and distracts and tempts and dismisses and rebukes and belittles and on and on and on and on and and shut up, says Jesus. And into that silence, he speaks a better word. Brandon, you can't get over the fact that I yelled shut up, can you? (laughs) I'm the interim pastor, you know, I don't have too much to lose, so I I can say things like that. All of the origin stories that I mentioned a few moments ago, they all link water and the sea with chaos. And they all travel in one direction, which is from chaos to cosmos, from formless to formed, from meaningless to meaningful. And in Genesis alone, even the chaos is created by and belongs to God. Even the chaos is good. He creates night and sea. The unknown, the terrifying are part of God's good creation. In the beginning from the watery, formless void of creation, God speaks into creation a world that is beautiful and very good. In the flood, from the watery judgment of chaos, God speaks flourishing to Noah and all the animals, and promises with a rainbow. Never again to flood his creation. In the Exodus, with the watery chaos of the Red Sea, it's split. And God speaks deliverance from slavery to abundance in a land flowing with milk and honey. In his chaos of disobedience, Jonah is thrown overboard and swallowed by the fish. And through him, God speaks the possibility of redemption to Israel's enemies, the Ninevites. In his baptism, Jesus willfully sinks down, covered in the chaos of the Jordan River, and God speaks confirmation of his identity as the well-pleased, beloved Son of God. And in the boat the disciples sinking into the chaos of a seemingly asleep and uninterested Jesus. God speaks. Peace. Be still. This seems to be God's pattern. If you're in the midst of a storm of chaos, be assured God is speaking something new, something better. God is molding the maelstrom into melody. Do you see that? Do you see the chaos in your world, in our world, as an invitation to experience the beautiful, powerful, creative goodness of God at work in your life? The disciples, they encounter this watery chaos not out of disobedience. Very different from Jonah because Jesus says, Hey, let's go across the sea. And they say, okay, they experience this chaos in following Jesus, right? Sooner or later on your path of discipleship, if you're following Jesus, you will be brought into the depths of chaos. And when that happens, you can try to ignore or avoid it. Or you can try and manage it on your own. But all of that would be to miss out on the purpose of chaos, which is always to be formed into meaning, order, and beauty by Christ the creator. In a strange, terrifying way, Chaos actually opens us up to wonder. Chaos makes possible an enlarged vision of God, a deeper reckoning of who Christ really is. And this is what happens at the end of our story. In verse 40, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who then is this? The Jesus they thought they knew this is no longer. The disciples are open up to wonder. Jesus is revealed in new dimensions to them, and they can't fully fathom it. This is what it means to be exposed to the glory of God. He always transcends our categories. We can never wholly apprehend he who is holy, he who is other. Who then is this? in whom God's creative and redeeming power invades the world of chaos and snatches people from its destructive force. The disciples experience fear in the storm, but it's a kind of fear that it it doesn't cause them to run from Jesus, but to run towards Jesus, which is a good kind of fear which is why you notice in the story, Jesus doesn't end their fear. He converts it. Their fear is actually multiplied. It's enlarged to what the text calls a great fear or a fear on top of fear. It's altered to a sort of holy terror of reverent wonder. The great calm after the great storm is actually more terrifying than the storm itself. It's this sort of fear and trembling found at the saving power of God in silence. A lot of us fear silence. In this great calm, the disciples experience a sense of awe in the presence of God. And Mark invites us into the same. That's why he lets this question linger on their lips so that it can be transferred onto ours. Who then is this? You see, we are pulled into the story, held accountable for our own answer to that very question. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's get practical. One place that I invite you to experience this somewhat scary great calm that processes from the chaos is in the practice of making your bed. I'm glad a lot of you didn't raise your hand because this can be new for you. So Tish Harrison Warren, the bed-making hater who I mentioned in the beginning of this sermon, she decided to introduce this new habit into her life during Lent a few years ago. Instead of beginning her day by checking her phone to see the news or her social media feed, she'd begin the day by making her bed and then sitting on it in silence and prayer for 5 to 10 to 15 minutes or so. And this is what she says. I want to read this extended quote from her book because I think it's really powerful. She says, My new Lenten routine didn't make me wildly successful or cheerfully buoyant, as some had promised. But I began to notice very subtly that my day was imprinted differently. The first activity of my day, the first move I made was not that of a consumer, but that of a co-laborer with God. Instead of going for a device for a morning fix of instant infotainment, I touched the tangible softness of our well-worn covers, tugged against wrinkled cotton, felt the hard wood beneath my bare feet, In the creation story, God entered chaos and made order and beauty. In making my bed, I reflected that creative act in the tiniest, most ordinary way. In my small chaos, I made small order. And then there was a little space, an ordered rectangle in my messy home. And that rectangle somehow carved out a small ordered space in my messy, distracted mind. And I sat, she says, at times I'd read scripture. Most often I'd pray and invite God into the day. I'd lay out my worries, my hopes, and my questions before God, spreading them out in his presence like stretched out sheets. I'd pray for my work my family, for decisions, for a meeting scheduled later in the day. But mostly, I'd invite God into the day and just sit, silent, sort of listening, sort of just sitting. But I sat expectantly. God made this day. He wrote it and named it and has a purpose in it. Today, he is the maker and giver of all good things. I don't know about you, but I want to start my days like that. That sounds good. And so that's my uh, invitation to you. You could say for the next week or the next month or through the rest of the year, you could try and leave your phone alone in the morning and practice making your bed first thing and just sit in silence and prayer, remembering the order and beauty and goodness he brings out of chaos. You might want to practice a simple breath prayer while you're sitting on your well-made bed like we talked about last week. Or maybe you want to pray our Old Testament lesson that we read this morning. Psalm 131, which is nice and short. Practice beginning your day with contentment. Can you sit before God like a weaned child is the invitation in that psalm. You see, an unweaned child Right? They'll be at the breast primarily for food. Maybe a little scream is trying to get whatever they can because they're, they're hungry and that's the only way they can eat. They want milk. But a weaned child is just at the breast for connection and intimacy, just there for the presence of their mother. Another option is to begin your day in the promises of Isaiah 43. Josh sang this scripture last week, and we're actually going to sing it again as our response after this. This one is a version by the Porter's Gate. It's called Nothing to Fear. Perhaps you want to sing it every morning or listen to it as a way to meditate in this truth, or maybe just uh, spend time praying those first three verses of Isaiah 43. And these are the words that I'm going to use to close the sermon this morning. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Amen.